Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, Rob Fortress Fortney here. I'm back after a couple weeks uh, MIA. Anyway, I used to be a journalist. I used to be a lot of things, but I'm still somebody who likes lifting heavy shit, so everything's good. That's good. (laughs) Hey, folks. uh, John Mike here, back on the show. uh, Doctorate candidate and exercise phys, strength coach, owner of uh, thestrengthexchange.com, and strongman competitor. And a definite iron radio brother. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's why you know when we have John on, I, I consider John filling the third chair, so to speak. Um, Phil's doing a power meet. Everybody, he's actually putting it on. He mentioned it last episode, so um, so he's busy doing that. You know, walking the walk out there. Nothing wrong with that. No. And so we got John in the third chair, a, a worthy um, fill-in for Big Phil. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Having said that, um. News. We have a boatload of listener mail, and some of these things are good questions. Uh, I'm going to apologize in advance for some of this because it's um, some of the emails were kind of long, and we can only address one or two points for each uh, dude. And so we'll. I think Rob's going to read a couple of these letters, and we really appreciate the letters, of course. Yeah. And then I've got just one little um, bit of new February 2013 science to share. And then we're going to get to our topic of the day, which is eccentric training, purposeful, um, you know, negatives and pros and cons and that sort of thing. Get some insight from scientific stuff, some stories and training tidbits from Fortress, all that sort of stuff. And, so, you know, it really is important to talk about that because, you know, maybe some people don't realize just how um, – I won't say even the, we use the word important, but how um, eccentric um, – methods and eccentric kind of um, stimulus and eccentric kind of just focus just kind of invades every type of, um, you know, lifting resistance training. And people probably don't even think about different ways that they do it and implement it um, and how it might be hurting them or helping them. So I think that's an interesting topic. But anyway, I did want to say... Um, Strength and Muscle Sport News. My former boss, uh, Robert Bob Kennedy, of course, the uh, the head of the Muscle Mag International... Uh, and uh, his publishing empire. I, I got an email that they have uh, an ebook that's kind of celebrating his life. Of course, he passed away uh, not too too long ago, um, and they have this ebook that's kind of has a bunch of photographs of his life and some stuff that he's done. It's been, it's done in collaboration with his wife and so forth. So, um, if you want to get this ebook, um, I, I, I suggest maybe just googling uh, Robert Bob uh, Kennedy ebook. Or something like that, and you'll probably find the link for it. So uh, um, there you go. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, miss you, Bob. So yeah, I'll get to one of these questions. The first one, Lonnie, was, uh, and of course, when I, I kind of received these on the get go, when people send uh, the, the feedback through the website, and I, I then 
more than likely disperse it to Phil and, and Lonnie. Um, certainly if, it, if it's something nutrition-related, it immediately goes to Lonnie because it's not my bag. But um, Mark wants to thanks for our continued excellence over the years. I uh, just started listening last year. Um, he's working his way back. Um, and anyway, best strength and muscle podcast out there. Now, he had a whole bunch of comments on here, and I know, Lonnie, that you want to address one of them because there's several. I think he has six of them here. And, and as Lonnie said, we can't... We can't um, focus on right. one too much. I know you want to do one of the comments. Lonnie and I already said that I want to do another one. Um, and the one that Precisely. you want to do is what? Do you have the, do you have the email in front of you? Yes. Uh, I have number one, and I'll just read this quickly because it pertains to Chad's show. And uh, he makes a good point. Um, he says, Chad's emphasis on how certain top athletes look and then mimicking their training style, uh, doesn't that ignore the fact that top-level sprinters that we see are guys with top-level sprinter genetics? And the crappy slow-twitch Sprinters have been basically weeded out in high school. You know, don't we have to play the hand we're dealt with the best we can? And it is a really good point. I think um, having fun sort of geeking out with Chad was that, of of course, what he's suggesting is part of the picture. It's not 100%, right? Any problem is going to be broken down into different portions, and each one of them explains part of the variance, you know, part of the issue. And so genetics is definitely part of it. Uh, I will agree with Chad on some level, though, that at least a portion of what you see in a gymnast, biceps, or speed skater's quads um, goes beyond just sport selection from a great pool of you know genetic freaks. Because I've seen cyclists who started with fairly small legs, and you know they just blew up with cycling as well. Um, just as one example. Now you might say, yeah, but they had the preponderance of type two X fibers, whatever. Maybe. Um, in fact, probably, but the training stimulus still worked great for them. You know, I mean, let's face it. There are people that are so genetically poor, they'll almost respond to nothing. <laughs> you know, they just don't get big. Um, the way my brother once put it, even about a guy, Rob, you know who I'm talking about, <laughs> who he didn't get big, even though he was uh, reportedly dabbling with all kinds of anabolics. And my brother said, poor bastards got no receptors. <laughs> yeah. And. And the point is that, yes, genetics are definitely part of it with of this course, kind of thing. Of but I do like what Chad said, though, that, you know, um, let's take a, a hint at the very least or a clue from how these guys train because they don't train in traditional bodybuilding ways. And in many ways, they look better than the average low-level amateur bodybuilder. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, For sure. So anyway, so yes, ge good point. Genetics are definitely part of that, you know, selecting from a better pool. Um, well, that's why I've even the, the more you, the years roll on, the more I've kind of come to the, the belief that you know to succeed at a high level of bodybuilding is mostly just how you respond to training, lots of calories and stuff, quote stuff, um, and that, 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 or dieting. You know, and a lot of yeah. people are gonna you know say that I'm being negative about that, or I'm being quite honestly an ass about that, and. You know, saying that I'm trying to diminish the the need to be dedicated, and that's not what I'm doing. There has to be a lot of dedication, but I mean, let's be realistic. I mean, you know, a, a guy like Jay Cutler, I mean, he just, um, you know, he's got the width, the natural width. He's got, you know, he responds very well to the things that he does. Wink, wink. And you know, and and outside of that, sure, he has to train hard. Again, hard is a relative term. I mean, some people would certainly say that it's not hard in comparison. Somebody who has a very, very structured pure strength, sport type uh, routine and program, um, you know, and that's very random. But, I mean, the point being is that there is effort involved. 
um, and there is dedication involved. How you know again, depending on how you think that the intensity of that is, but you know, it really is. It's going to. I mean, Lonnie, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you don't have you know, and in genetics comes in several you know, in dozens of different varieties. So you know, take. The- in fact, let me pick up on that before we get to the next point that you want to address from the listener, but. Um, one of the cool things I think about bodybuilding is you don't have to be a big man to excel. Your genetics for small joints or fast twitch muscle fibers or whatever, it's, it, it actually creates a venue for guys. Because we've had, we've had guests on the show, they talk about big man sports and that sort of thing. But certainly not all bodybuilders uh, are big. I would say most strongman competitors you know, lean toward the big you size. You know, that's an amazing you know? um, and perfect um, thing that you just said there, because it's very true. And when you really think about it, most bodybuilders who become very, very successful are certainly well below six feet tall. Well, yeah, um, but look, yeah. I mean, look at guys like Frank Zane and Franco Colombo. Those are those are two perfect examples of of, of, of that thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, normal or even no. Short. I mean, height yeah. and structural size are not mandatory by any means. I mean, Lee Labrada, Steve Brisbois, I mean, the, the list goes on at Mohammed Benaziza. I mean, these names go on and on and on of mm-hmm. men that are not structurally big and they're not, they don't, they're not blessed with height. Um, you, you can, but they're blessed. I mean, you can even yeah. look at a guy like, and I've said this before, Kevin Lavroni, who, the first time I ever met him, he was still in the, in the kind of the prime of his bodybuilding career. And the thing that most amazed me when I met him in person the first time is actually structurally how he's not a big guy. It's just that he, you know, he, he was able to develop and carry such amounts of mass that in pitchers it gave you the belief that the guy was also structurally gigantic, um, yeah. and he's not. Um, but anyway, it, it, that's a great point, Lonnie, like I say. And, and in a lot of ways, um, height, um, you know, like above average height and structural size can actually work against you in bodybuilding in a lot of ways. Because um, we all know guys who are like six feet plus. There's few of them who have ever actually excelled at a high level of bodybuilding. You know, outside. Well, often, I, I would argue, often guys that are really, really big, they lose a certain element of of, of proportion a lot absolutely. of times. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, not to mention just the age old, you know, conundrum of trying to fill out a huge frame with tons of mass. I mean, you you can look at examples all throughout for guys from like Ralph Mahler and you know Arnold's good yeah. buddy. And I mean, you you can become um, you can be actually gigantic in, in body weight and actually be carrying a, a huge amount of muscle mass, but it just doesn't sit um, in, a, in a way that's as aesthetically pleasing as a guy that might be five foot nine, five foot ten, and and just be like, you know, everything flows together very nicely. So, and once you get very tall um, in bodybuilding, you start getting, you know, these are all just observations that I've made over the years. You get guys who have kind of like. Um, you know, arms that are kind of thin from the front and they start developing turnip thighs and usually wider waists goes along with that. And yeah. I mean, kind of a strangeness to as far as like the V taper thing kind of gets a little bit more, you know, to lack of a better word, gangly. So, and that's not saying it can't be done, but I mean, yes, guys who go much more than six one six two, it usually becomes, I mean, when you really think about it, how many guys have actually reached the pinnacle of bodybuilding who are above 6162? I mean, you can look at guys like maybe a, a Paul DeLette or a Gary Stridham, but even those guys were only like, you know, maxing out at six foot, six foot one. Uh, right. So the next comment was about um, a power meet, I think, right? Well, yeah, and this is the one that I kind of want to address because it's certainly one that I'm, you know, I, I uh, feel very close to as far as the psychology of it. And everybody knows that I love the psychology of things. Anyway, he wants to try his, this person that wrote this mark, uh, 
again, thank you for your letter. He, he, one of his comments was that he wants to actually try, um, he's doing a physique show, but after that he wants to try a powerlifting meet, so good stuff. Um, and he was wondering if there's as much value in just doing like 10 second walkouts with a much heavier weight than you can currently squat. Um, he's not a power lifter, but in getting to his 350-ish squat, one of his biggest things to overcome was his what he calls a feeling of over, being overwhelmed by the compression forces. Um, he's not talking about even trying to do one-quarter squats, um, and, he, and he's wondering if that the walkouts have anything uh, of any benefit to psychology. Of, and you know what? I absolutely think that they do. Um, you know, a lot of people who are not pure strength athletes probably laugh at the idea of doing this. And I've seen, you know, why would you do that? But I mean, when you're backing, certainly if you're not using a monolift, if you're backing out with, you know, a considerable weight on your shoulders, I mean, that becomes every bit as part of, you know, even then Cohn says, I mean, that's part of the lift. And in, in certainly if that's the way kind of you think of things. And again, I think the monolift is a great idea, um, but it's been abused very much. And it's, um, in my opinion, but yeah, if you're if you're in a federation where you actually have to walk out the weight, yeah, practicing walking out with a huge weight definitely not only helps you formulate the most efficient way to get out and not blow energy and to get yourself into a proper squatting position um, again with minimal energy expenditure and and risk for injury because I would I would venture to say that in my opinion the most dangerous part of a heavy 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 squat is backing out with it. Um, yeah, I think another point to add on to that is I mean. You're going to have to have more, you know, transition through heavy, you know, more core strength to to really help support the weight because, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just the that's just the nature of it. I mean, if your core is weak, then you're gonna you're just gonna feel it everywhere, and it's not gonna be, you know, executed very well. Exactly. Um, and and the second part of the question, the whole idea about the psychology of you know, like the as he terms it, feeling the overwhelmed by the compression forces. You know, that's something that I've talked about in articles and on this show before, and it's it's very true. I mean, people who don't again lift and, and don't lift very 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 heavy, like competitively heavy, um, and of course that's relative to the person. But you know, yes, that feeling. And I always used to say to people, and it's true, when you get under a squat bar that's very heavy. It's in that nanosecond where the weight is going from being supported by the rack to being now placed on your back. That split second where you stand up with it and there it is. All of a sudden now it's transferred to your back. In that moment, you can make or break your success on that particular lift. Um, of course, you can get crushed regardless, but, but certainly if you have a, you know, even a degree of, of possibility that you're going to be successful with it, it's made or break, broken in that nanosecond when you lift up the weight. People think, you know, three, four hundred pounds feels heavy on their back, but I, you know, I've done walkouts with over eight hundred pounds, and I'll tell you, it's, it feels literally like the world is on top of you, um, and it can actually be very um, disturbing, actually, the feeling. So you have to psychology get, get yourself acclimated to that feeling. That it's normal, you know what I mean? Kind of, kind of like the way, same way I say about deadlifts. You have to lift to, you know, you have to lift heavy to the point where your eyeballs feel like they're blown out. You have to get used to. If you want to squat very, very heavy, you have to get over the psychology of that. That's going to be how it feels when you put, you know, a ninety, ninety-five percent, a hundred percent squat on your back. It's going to feel like the world is on you. So, I definitely think in, in conjunction with the walkout kind of methodology, I think I think there's definitely a psychological benefit to that for sure. And, and like John said. Certainly, physical um, benefit is there too, as well as far as adapting to like your trunk and so forth, and getting used to just actually supporting that much weight. So, definitely, there's a long answer for you. All right. <laughs> now we. <laughs> no, it's good advice. Uh, 
so we've got um, one or two more before we get to break. So let's try to, um, yes. you know, address as many of these guys as we can. Okay, now here's one that's for Lonnie. It's from Mike. Thanks for your letter, Mike. Um, he's asking about nutritional advice as it relates to a, a certain affliction he has. Lonnie, and, and um, the second part of it, he sent two emails, and the second one was um, entertain the question I neglected to mention about low oxalate diet. Um, because of calcium oxalate kidney stones that his body produces. Um, he's talking about that in relation to, I, I believe it's called Meniere's disease. I believe so, yeah. Like and and um, I, I know nothing about any of this, so I'm just going let, to like, let you take it, Lonnie, as far as what you know, because whatever you know is, a lot, is more than I know. So, <laughs> Well, I wish I could help a little bit more. It's an uncommon inner ear condition, and it has to do – it's um, – Largely genetic. Uh, it has to do with fluid retention and that sort of thing. And aside from uh, different dietary and drug methodologies or treatments to try to control it, um, you know, ringing of the ears. Um, one of the biggest problems, I think, is vertigo. Uh, and again, I'm really trying to remember this. This is not, you know, a, a real common condition, but. Um, yeah, like low salt, low sodium diets to try to get reduce fluid in the body a little bit, or um, some people suggest higher potassium uh, diets because potassium sort of has a diuretic sort of effect. Um, when I hear low oxalate diets, though, uh, I always cringe about that. Whether it's kidney stones or you know Meniere's disease or whatever it is, um, because I mean, basically, if you look at a bodybuilding kind of healthy diet. It's almost all oxalate riddled. I mean, whether it's like, I mean, imagine the list. And I, I've just thought about this before that, you know, hopefully drugs or other approaches can help some of these patients because to avoid, I mean, you're talking about avoiding everything from coffee, dairy, nuts, vegetables like spinach and potatoes. I mean, um, strawberries. I mean, you could, you know, all these healthy foods, uh, you know, it makes you cringe that you would have to avoid them. Um, so I'm not saying it's it's not helpful to try to do a low oxalate diet, but boy, you know, you, do your best to find a dietitian to work with and and help you do an elimination diet. Um, but I'm just afraid that you eliminate if you try to completely eliminate oxalate from your diet, you're going to you're not going to be eating anything healthy hardly at all. It's going to be really hard. Um, so. I wish I could offer more about that. I guess you can also hear that oxalate has a connection with histamine, and people are familiar with histamine. It's a compound of the body that causes inflammation and, and swelling and you know, all kinds of problems. Um, so in some people, apparently, oxalates can worsen inflammation and histamine uh, in the body. So I don't know. I think if I was diagnosed with that condition, I would do my best to maybe – pick and choose my oxalate foods, I don't think I would com completely try to eliminate it because, like I said, there's just too many healthy things. I'm not going out going without my coffee and, you know, my um, milk-based protein shakes, for example. I don't know how I would survive. Um, so anyway, um, you know, that's the best information that I can give. At least there are some facts for you. Uh, try to do an elimination diet on some level, but, uh, boy, yeah, the table – I've actually looked at nutrition books before at oxalate-rich foods, and, you know, it's almost a who's who of the healthiest foods you can think of. Man. So, uh, like I said, maybe the pharmaceutical route is something you can lean on a little bit more instead of completely trying to eliminate oxalates from the diet. Mm -hmm. That's that's the best I can really say. Move on here to another letter by uh, Stephen. Thank you for your letter. Lonnie, you have this one. It's about his son 
the football. Do you want me to read this one? Oh, yeah. This is a this one should be quick. Um, is is about his son. The question is about his son. He is fourteen. Wants to be a little bigger for football. Will he hurt his metabolism if he lets him bulk up for the summer for four to five weeks with intense training? He just doesn't want anything to affect him negatively. Um, anyway, so that's from Stephen. So what- I think we can all answer this one to some extent. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not going to hurt him. No. Um, you know, I even hear pros and cons about creatine use with you know, adolescents. And I don't even have a big problem with that, to be honest. I mean, as long as you're you're taking a healthy outlook and, you know, you're not treating it like some kind of weird doping. People have such crazy ideas about creatine. It's just a nutrient, you know. But anyway, the point is, I know that's not the question. The question is, you know, large amounts of calories and intense training. Um, there are some kinds of training you have to be careful with in adolescence. Like, for example, some people might not want to see heavy, you know, depth jumps or different kinds of plyometrics. But, you know... I, as far as like just barbell heavy lifting and lots of calories and like I said, even a little creatine or something, I don't see a problem with that. The literature's not going to say you know you're going to screw up a meta- his metabolism uh, or anything like that. Uh, it might help to basically write down what he currently eats that makes him full, and that might be a lot if he's a teenager, and then take the fortress approach instead of calorie counting and everything, just increase you know by twenty five percent across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Um, like if he currently, if 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 two baked potatoes is what he eats now, maybe he has three. You know, if uh, one cup of oatmeal is what he eats now, maybe he has a cup and a half. You know, that sort of thing. Or even just throwing in like a like a, you know, generic weight gain or something once during the day or something like that. You know, even, good good point. Some drinking calories. Yeah, because yeah. you know, as as we've always said, it's always easier to drink calories than to eat them. But and specifically when you're a teenager, a lot of teenagers have you know. Difficulty, you know, being, uh, you know, um, regimented to the point where they're eating. So, I mean, things like that, whatever, it's going to make it easier for, for him to do. And, and, again, you don't have to go overboard at first. Like you say, Lonnie, you could just, like, slowly ramp it up a bit and see how that affects him. So, you know, see, see what his tolerances are for those types of things. So Let me offer a quick disclaimer. Whether it's the, the inner ear disease condition or this, you know, although I am a registered dietitian, you know, this is just for informational purposes. I think you guys know that. But, um one of the things that dietitians do often do is a drink calories, you bet, protein and calories. You can even put a little bit of oil in shakes, you know, just for extra calories. But healthy fats is, are another one. You know, handfuls of mixed nuts if you're not allergic, high fat granola, portable things that he could take with him to school, put in his locker, whatever, and just chow as often as possible. Rob and I wrote an article about two years ago for, um, T-Mag, and it was about crashing through barriers. And I mean, a lot of people who try to nitpick and, you know, count, oh, I'm going to eat an extra 57 calories today. They're not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> there's, there's too much coming and going in life that you need to get aggressive. So drink the calories, like Rob said, 20 to 40 grams of protein in a shake, tons of carbs. Uh, you know, like I said, you can even put, you know, use, use whole milk. Um, for a while, you might, some people, again, fret over saturated fat. This is not the time to fret <laughs> over that. Um, I mean, it takes nearly 3,000 calories to put on a pound of muscle. I, I think they'll be okay. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. So that's a good point. I mean, almost 3,000 calories excess yes. above what he already needs, and his calorie needs are already up around 3,000 a day. So if you break it down over the course of a week, let's say, he would need four or 500 extra calories every day on top of his, let's say, 3,000 so we would need like 3,400, 3,500 every day, and then 
theoretically over the course of a week, that would be enough energy to build a pound of muscle if he's training, you know, fairly heavy, you know, let's say three or four times a week. I don't think I'd have him lifting more than three or four times a week because we've talked about this before on the show. Um, no offense to Chad Waterbury on the last episode who likes lots of training, but um, you really need to be in a positive calorie balance, and it's going to be hard for him to get in that really high highly positive energy balance oh, yeah. if he's training his butt off, you know, two hours a day, five days a week. Right, and also playing football and all that kind of thing. And the fact that he's 14 years old, I would argue to say that the next 10, 15 years for him are going to be, I mean, if he does tend to be a lifer, you know, somebody who is of the iron, um, I would venture to say that the next 10, 15 years are going to be largely what's going to dictate how he is going to be, you know, as he kind of matures as a lifter. So I think it would be important yeah. to kind of, and I, if, if I could go back, and I've always said this, the one thing I would have done is I would have had more calories when I was a teenager. Oh, uh, me too. You know, because I did, oh, yeah. I did my, I was of the belief, you know, it was the day and age where it was all about micromanaging, and I thought that a great meal was a can of tuna and, and yep. you know, and a little bit of freaking rice, you know, and I was like 15 years old and, you know, training five days a week and squatting my brains out, and it was just like, it, yeah. So if I could go back, I would definitely would have decreased the my volume of my, my training, volume of my training, and increased and stopped trying to eat so bloody clean all the time. So well, I think especially because I mean, if you eat too little fat, for example, testosterone levels can fall ten or fifteen percent. You know, and I think you set the stage. I mean, there are certain maturational windows, you know, opportunities in adolescence where if you're Working on, you know, muscular coordination and, and muscle building and these sorts of things, you're actually setting the stage in many ways for adulthood, like Rob is saying. So don't miss those windows. You know, eating large amounts of healthy, clean food uh, is the way to go. And like I said, I, I would suggest that just as general information, kids like this in this situation, starting with a diet record and then simply adding about 25% uh, more food to it. And like I said, especially with the portable foods, drink the calories. That's the best advice I think we can give. Yeah. Now, um, we got a letter from Mitch, Lonnie, about vegetarianism. Did you want to touch on that a little bit? Oh, um, okay, yeah, I actually have it here. Let's see. He says, love the show. I've been a listener for about a year. Uh, it's really helped turn me from an apathetic and occasional gym goer to something more serious. Um, feels like you guys are gym buddies. Well, we are in a way. Um, I've got a question about being vegetarian. Is it possible to get big and strong without eating meat? Uh, this is a, sort of an age-old question. This makes me think of, and this is going to date me. Rob will know who I'm talking about. Uh, Andreas Colling. Remember him, Rob? Oh, yeah. You know, and he actually competed not too long ago and looked like he just stepped out of hell. But anyway. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. But he was famous for being, uh, I don't know if he was pure vegan or if he was like lacto-ovo vegetarian, you know, getting some milk and some eggs. Um, probably the latter. But in any case, I do think it's possible, although vegetable proteins are notoriously incomplete. You know, I mean, soy is about as close as the plant kingdom gets to a complete protein. Um, but frankly, things like whey and casein are just superior for muscle building. Um, that's just science. That's not opinion. <laughs> I mean, if you look at some of the work from Stu Phillips, it's, he literally did a lot of comparisons between dairy proteins and soy, and they're, they're flat out better. Um, so if you're doing it for ethical reasons or what have you, and I, I, ha I don't have a ch chance to read all this, but, um, you know, at least then you're not eating something with a face. I used to have a grad student. She says, I, I, you know, I'm a vegetarian for ethical reasons. I don't eat anything with a face. Um, so, so she ate eggs and milk, 
you know, and those are fantastic quality proteins. Um, anyway, he says, I can't find anything on being a large mammal without eating large mammals. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. And like I said, if you look at Stu Phillips' research, um, you know, he's just going to really be touting the hornets of dairy proteins. Uh, and I think sometimes people forget that meats have zoochemicals, just like you hear about phytochemicals yeah. in plants that that affect you know, muscle metabolism or hormone or enzyme activity, you know, there are things like carnosine and creatine in meat, you know, that are um, also very helpful. Now, I, again, I understand if for ethical reasons um, and you, you want to plan this, I would suggest, though, this is the same thing I tell a lot of um, collegiate athletes, plan. You've got to plan ahead. Get B12. You know, um, there's a, a number of nutrients that you're going to have to purposely try to get because avoiding uh, animals completely, um, although it can be done, um, it takes a lot of planning because your body's going to expect certain nutrients that come from animals. Um, so anyway, yes, uh, plenty of calories. Do the best you can with the different kinds of proteins. Um, I don't know if you'd be offended by this, but maybe if, there, if you go with one of these other types of proteins, there's lots of them out there, um, plant-derived proteins. Spike it with extra leucine. Um, that might add to the anabolic effect because the leucine content of a meal is key and a lot of those plant proteins might not be very rich in that. Okay, um, I've just got one more thing. Before we go to break, it's just a little bit of science here before our topic of the day on eccentric training or negatives. This is from the journal Obesity, February 21st, 2013. It's called Effects of Increased Meal Frequency on Fat Oxidation and Perceived Hunger. I think this was pretty uh, interesting comparison. It says consuming smaller, more frequent meals is often advocated, uh, you know, for weight control, etc. They looked at com- they compared three versus six meals a day, and they looked at 24-hour fat oxidation or fat burning and sensations of hunger. Uh, it says there were no differences in 24-hour energy expenditure. Uh, or the respiratory quotient, right, their fuel mix, how much fat they're burning, uh, 24-hour fat oxidation, etc. Conclusion, we conclude that increasing meal frequency from three to six per day has no significant effect on fat burning, uh, and it may increase hunger and the desire to eat, hmm. maybe because of the, the habitual nature of eating so often. Um, so I think that is a Japanese study, at least in part. So Colorado, Tokyo, yeah, a couple different. Uh, yeah, there's, there's been some recent research recently that talks about three versus six meals and you know five or six meals, and there doesn't really seem to be that much of a difference. There's probably more difference in terms of probably um, you know overall macronutrient intake and effect on protein synthesis, but um, aside from that, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference. When I hear about this kind of thing, or attempts to manipulate diet and training oftentimes, the truth is the human body is so adaptable that homeostasis will ruin the bro science every time. You know, I mean, you could try to get clever. I mean, if, I guess ideally, if you're really trying to make gains, you'd eat six big meals instead of three big meals. You know what I mean? You wouldn't eat six medium meals versus three big meals. You would just keep it coming, you know, because it's more calories, more food, more often. Um, but aside from trying to crash through barriers and get that high, yeah, eating the same number of calories in three versus six meals, you know, homeostasis just kind of ruined that. And it's it's not bad, right? I mean, it's good that our bodies are an even keel with so many things. Um, 
it, it keeps us alive. So that's what I've got as far as the science, and that will bring us to break now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go to break, and when we come back, we'll talk about eccentric lifting. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180 day rentals and one year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back. This time it's Lonnie and Rob and Jonathan Mike. And um, again, Phil's gone um, handling a power meet, so he's walking the walk, and we're going to talk the talk today. And let's start with um, maybe a definition, John. Can you give us a definition of eccentric or what some people call eccentric exercise? I think for the most part, people know the difference between concentric and eccentric. And we know concentric is just more like muscle shortening. But when the force applied to a muscle exceeds that produced by a muscle, you know, it'll lengthen, right, or act eccentrically, which occurs, you know, for example, during like a descent of a squat or, you know, the negative phase of a, of, you know, a bench. But eccentric contractions typically, you know, describe muscle uh, like elongation, right, or the active lengthening of, of muscle fibers under load. Um, so it's, the negative phase of an exercise really gives you a lot of bang for your buck. And 
you know, those seeking max results should incorporate um, training methods on, you know, eccentric overload. And, you know, a lot of eccentric muscle actions can be performed, you know, at greater absolute, you know, muscle forces. Um, you get a lower level of activation than, than concentric ones. And there is even plenty of research that suggests that subjects may be as strong as 20 to 60% stronger uh, eccentrically than, than concentrically. So, Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the pros. If we talk about pros and cons, one of the pros, and I just think it's a very cool concept, is that you can lift above 100% of your ability, right? You can actually use a load greater than your concentric maximum. So, for example, if you can bench two and a quarter um, regularly for a single, you can lower 250 or more um, with the help of a partner, and that puts more tension on the muscle fibers and, you know, uh, causes you know soreness and probably enhances recovery time and those sorts of things. But I think that's an incredibly cool concept that you can lift a weight, or at least not lift, but handle a weight beyond your maximum. Right. So def- definitely one of the pros. Um, and I touched on this just a second ago, but hypertrophy too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at almost any textbook, they're going to talk about that, right? Yeah. I think from like a from more of a hypertrophy hypertrophy perspective. You know, speed of movement, movement speed plays a larger role on the eccentric part of the rep. So the speed of movement not only should be controlled, and, and it depends on if you're purposely doing a longer eccentric, you know, duration of contraction versus two second, you know, four seconds or six seconds. Um, so if you're controlling it, um, you know, strength and hypertrophy, you know, really should be there. Um, I mean, intensity plays a role, too, but, again, definitely one of the pros is, you know, you need to train heavy enough uh, to really understand and, and take take advantage of the fact that you can use super max lows, right? Yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I think, I mean, imagine time under tension at 120% of your max. That's that's a kind of a crazy concept, you know, and obviously that would help with growth. Last week, Chad was talking about, you know, the muscle damage and remodeling process and satellite cell activation and eccentric training is a great way to, to do that because you're, you're actually really scrambling. I mean, if you look under a microscope, and I have uh, at muscle fibers, you can really see a lot of um, scrambling. I mean, it's no wonder you're about 15% weaker when you're really sore a day or two after doing negatives um, because, you know, the sarcomeres are just scrambled in a lot of ways and they're reorganizing, and eventually, you know, you'll supercompensate and you'll you'll grow, of course. Um, but you know, it would extend the recovery period. I mean, in my dissertation, I looked at all kinds of things, and I'll talk about these in a minute. But um, some of these variables, as I mentioned last week with Chad, don't reset for about five days, at least the first time that you insult, uh, you know, or damage you know the muscle when i say damage of course i mean micro damage you know muscle soreness not like uh, ruptures of course um so eccentric training is not going to be something that you're going to be able to do i would argue with high frequency just because you're so trashed um like i said you're 10 or 15 percent weaker i've seen it in the lab you're very sore you know what i mean and you're just and you probably don't even have the central nervous system inclination to get crazy and, and get back after it, you know, when you're that trashed. Like right now, I was, I, I'm, I'm lifting fairly frequency, but I sort of crossed the line and I got myself good and sore. And right now my glutes and my hands, my adductors are very sore from squatting. And 
I was scheduled to go back in. I'm actually doing some higher frequency stuff. And it was really hard to do that. You know, I had to try to work around it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, Rob, you've been really sore from negatives before, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, I, I've always incorporated this um, attribute in my training that was once coined by, I believe it was Dr. Fred Hatfield. Um, and he always called it compensatory acceleration. And I've mentioned it before on the show several times. Um, the whole idea that you lower a weight, um, in all your reps and all your sets under control, and then you explode during the lifting or concentric portion. Um, and I've always been a big believer in that. And as the years have passed, I learned more and more, and I became to understand that the benefits of eccentric training as it exists, I realized that I was always incorporating an element of that in my training through that method. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, then, you know, getting to know you, Lonnie, and uh, being more educated about all these types of things, I realized as well that um, there is such benefit from eccentric, f- focusing on the eccentric as, as well. I would say, though, that certainly the level of, of soreness that you can, a- you can achieve by using um, varying degrees of intensity in eccentric training is, is crazy. I mean, I know that. Lonnie, when I was living down there in Ohio with you and you were doing a study once where you were actually trying, trying purposefully to make people very, very sore, you incorporate almost strictly um, eccentric-type reps. And, um, yeah, I, that's why I would always caution people that, although they can be very beneficial for strength and muscle hypertrophy, that you have to be very careful because overdoing it certainly can, can put you in that dreaded overtraining category. And when you really think about it, a lot of the, you know, typical classic bodybuilding um, principles. I, I know Joe Weider used to uh, you know, coin them these as Weider principles, but you know, the whole idea of like forced reps and and all these types of things and you know like assistance and, and, and drop sets and all this kind of stuff, a lot of it is is in print in, in a lot of ways is is like in, incorporating eccentric training into your, your routine. And if you if a bodybuilder or a young lifter does all those types of things all the time, it's not hard to imagine that you'd be sore all the time. And certainly, Good point. And, yep. and certainly when I was young, and I know that you kind of um, chase after that kind of soreness a lot, Lonnie, even now, although I don't so much, but our goals are different, um, that can be beneficial. But again, I mean, again, I, just, I say it over and over again, but it can also be hugely detrimental as well. So you have to be, be very careful with those things. I mean, you know, and then when I lear- learn about things like, um, you know, guys like Ed Cohn and stuff saying that, you know, dur- during the training, they try to never miss a rep and they always try and stop sets short of absolute failure, you know, one or two reps before ap- absolute failure. You know, then you start uh, taking those things in and distilling that further and you start realizing that a lot of what those types of guys are talking about is essentially staying away from that type of thing where you're actually starting to, you know, uh, perform the, the set more based on um, controlling the weight and stopping the weight than actually exploding the weight. Right, uh, or even trashing the muscle. Uh, like, one of the ways that many people use eccentric training, of course, is they can lift beyond positive failure. You know, so I was mentioning somebody benching two and a quarter. So he, you know, let's say he does his whatever his best is with that, half a dozen reps. And then he can continue to lower the weight uh, with the help of a partner. But this is the kind of thing, like you're saying, is the opposite of what a power lifter might do in a lot of ways. I mean, unless he's just in a hypertrophy phase or something. And where, you know, exhausting himself beyond concentric failure 
you know, that's the opposite of leaving some in the tank. And you also want to be careful, too, if you're a strength athlete, because, um, and this is one of the ways that kind of the West Side Louis Simmons thing has kind of really helped a lot. Um, and I've said in the past that I, I've come to realize that a lot of the West Side thing has hurt powerlifting. <laughs> but, but one of the ways I think that it's helped is this whole idea that you don't want to only train the aspect of just being strong. You've got to be powerful, too. In other words, the, the whole incorporation of just speed training and that type of thing because you want to keep things being able to fire rapidly. But um, So you can develop a very um, – I, I believe that, again, going back to that whole idea of compensatory acceleration, controlled um, negatives and exploding the positive, I think that's a great way of training. And, and I believe that that's a great way of training to de- develop density and thickness Yep. Um, but I think if you go too far with that, you can, and you're, you are a strength athlete, I think you can actually harm yourself on the other end of things. And I think that I've, I have done that. And I've talked about this in the past. I think that, you know, my strength, um, far exceeds my power. Um, and I've worked a lot in the last decade or so to try and kind of bring more balance onto that. And it's been very difficult for me to do that because again, I've always trained with that idea of very controlled, very tight, um, movements, and I think you have to find that balance. And certainly, as it um, applies specifically to what you are, whether you're a bodybuilder or a strength athlete, you have to. I mean, certainly, if you're an Olympic lifter, from you know, I mean, those guys, I don't think those guys ever want to really, ne- <laughs> really want to expose yeah. the whole negative. That's why they're always dropping weights and stuff. And I mean, that's one of the reasons right. that you guys brought up, um, Phil and you, Lonnie, brought up a year or so ago that actually kind of set a light bulb in my into my head. The whole idea that you know, how those guys train so frequently. Um, not only the fact that their percentages very often are so very low, but the fact that they really don't do a lot of, <laughs> there's not a lot of negative implementation into their training because they're always yeah. dropping weights. Um, right. And there's nothing. Hey, um, let me ask that you just said something that made me think. John, what do you know about the transfer of doing eccentric stuff, making your concentric lifts stronger? That's a really good question. And uh, that's part of what, we're not really looking at that for my dissertation, but I think hopefully, you know, the results will, will really um, uh, help understand better about more concentric strength. We're, we're actually looking at varying um, durations of contraction, like two second, four second, or six second, like eccentric only uh, with strength, damage, and uh, rate of force production. But there's, there's enough research that talks about, you know, doing eccentric only training does transfer um, and manifest well um, to concentric training, um, but there is, you know, mixed literature on it. It just depends on, you know, the, the, the nature of the study itself and, and the methodology. And, you know, going back to what Rob was saying, from a strength and conditioning and programming perspective, I've been asked this question a few times, you know, during in-season, you know, training and competition for, you know, various you know, sports, it depends on the nature of the sport and, you know, what the programming consists of, but really trying to minimize a lot of eccentric, you know, contractions or components within either an exercise or, w- or within the training program to not only reduce any type of muscle damage that may occur, but to really help maintain, if not accelerate the recovery process, you know, going from, you know, game to game and, you know, traveling and things like that. So that's definitely something to really keep in mind. Um, but eccentric only uh, contractions um, certainly increase, uh, you know, strength um, almost like across the board. You know, I, 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 
I'm glad that you actually pointed out that the literature's mixed because that was my understanding yeah. too. I used to think that eccentric training, you know, let's again back to the lifter who can bench two and a quarter and he can, but he's lowering 250 with his training buddy. Um, that that would not necessarily make his concentric portion of his list better. But then recently I've been reading that it does. Yeah, um, it's so it appears it is mixed yeah. then. I mean, like, for example, like a lot of stuff in the research in the 90s with on even uh, late mid and late 90s up to early 2000s and even as far as much recent as like, you know, 2010 to, to um, you know, this year, um, you know, uh, improvements in, in the eccentric strength of 43 percent. Um, with eccentric only trading compared to 31% with concentric only regimen. Mm. You know, uh, this guy Farthing from 2003 concluded that eccentric training resulted in greater hypertrophy than concentric training uh, for biceps uh, o- over the course of eight weeks. Um, same thing for the, I think it's like Carruthers and colleagues from 2010 from General Strength and Conditioning Research. So, yeah. um, and even there's, there's much more research comparing eccentric uh, versus concentric, um, less on eccentric only, um, but that's uh, where our study um, is going to help um, accelerate um, or really better understand some of the mechanisms um, and um, to publish, et cetera. So. You know, that's cool. In fact, let me run down a list of little-known things or positive and, and negative kinds of things. Rob was mentioning when, gosh, it was back about 2001, 2002, we were doing – uh, eccentric only with like, I think we were using 90% loads. Rob, you remember how we had the Smith machine loaded up. I mean, some yeah. of us that were stronger, I mean, criminy, we had like 400 pounds on that thing doing negatives, you know, multiple sets with 90% in the squat of negatives. I mean, yeah. we were so sore. We're like leaning on the handrail. We're like practically on crutches the next day, yeah. you know. And what we are looking at, um, particularly in that one, was uh, there was a couple of things, but we did see some weakness and we saw lots of the classic enzyme release, you know, the classic muscle damage markers in the blood, like creatine kinase, of course, or ALT, AST, LDH, a lot of things that a a physician might think about as liver damage enzymes. They also, of course, different isoforms will spill out of your muscles. But um, one of the things we're looking at with that is um, it it looked like in that particular study, they – when we were very, very sore at 24 hours after doing this to ourselves, we had higher blood sugars. And not everybody shows that, but a lot of researchers do show that muscle is resistant, mm-hmm. um, you know, to carbohydrate and insulin when you're very, very sore. So if you do invoke this kind of training and you're really, really sore, I would suggest, and this is partly speculative, but you might want to focus on healthier fats as a calorie source to keep the calories flowing, protein and fats, and not just boatload, you know, the lucky charms, because your muscles are going to be partly resistant to that. I mean, if you want to get muscle glycogen put back, I mean, you can look at work from Bill Sherman, uh, Kevin Yaroshevsky. Um, there was a researcher named Della Guila who did a bunch of stuff with poor um, insulin uh, pathway activity in eccentrically damaged muscles, you know, micro-damaged muscles. Um, Sherman was doing stuff, gosh, all the way back in the 80s on poor glycogen replenishment. So there's little doubt that muscles are carbohydrate resistant when they're very, very sore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why in that study that Rob was talking about, we are doing 90% negatives in the bench and squat. Mm-hmm. And we just got trashed from head to toe because we're like, listen, we're going to look at bodybuilders. First of all, they're almost all muscle. You know, they're, they're more muscly than an average guy. And if we make all that muscle sore, 
what are we going to see with their blood sugar? What are we going to see with their insulin? You know, that's funny. And we actually yeah. reported that at the Ohio Academy of Science, you know, that there was, in fact, these aberrations that the other researchers have talked about. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind, you know, one of the, one of the underlining contributing factors to hypertrophy, right, is just, you know, mechanical tension. So exercise-induced hypertrophy from eccentric exercise, right, so it's, it's manifested by greater muscular tension under load. And so when you think of a you know, basic neuromuscular fizz, right, like, you know, the size principle, which has, you know, been around since, you know, the mid-late 1950s, but, you know, a lightweight, you know, slow-twitch fibers, as the weight gets heavier, you know, you start to recruit more and more fast-twitch um, fibers. But it's postulated that because of the greater muscular tension under load, it's postulated that, that this is the result of the reversal of the size principle, right? So the mm-hmm. bias switch motor units are being recruited first. Um, there's even some research that talks about eccentric exercises also um, associated to increases in protein synthesis and a larger rise in like IGF-1, like mRNA, um, you know, expression um, mm-hmm. to uh, concentric actions. So. Yeah, right on. And I'll tell you, with all this potential growth, you know, the growth factors and, like you said, IGF-1, white blood cells are getting in there. They're not just fighting bacteria and viruses. They also help with muscle remodeling and that sort of thing. Um, But you want to feed the muscle. And I think that's one of the interesting almost connections with clinical nutrition. In clinical nutrition, it's hard to feed people that are in a catabolic state and get their bodies to do what you want with the extra calories, you know. And... That's what I see with eccentric trauma. Um, I actually, when I teach a sports nutrition class, I compare eccentric soreness, you know, microtrauma, with elective surgeries, for example. And believe it or not, a lot of the damage markers are comparable to an elective surgery. You are that rocked. And so the key is, I think, during the recovery phase, which is going to be longer – you got to get the food in. You got to get calories in, in, a, in a, at a time when the muscles might be resistant, uh, especially to carbohydrates. So, like I said, healthy fats. Your metabolic rate. I actually looked, and other researchers have done this too. You'll see roughly a ten or fifteen percent increase in metabolic rate. It's part of that injury response. I mean, in a clinical setting, the classic example would be burns or head injury. You know, huge calorie needs because their metabolic rate goes wild, and you will see a ten or fifteen percent jump in metabolic rate. Now, think about that. That means you have to eat ten or fifteen percent more calories, right, just to stay even keel. Yeah. So it's still you know, we're still going back to the whole idea about calories and having to take lots of calories. So. It's, it's amazing how a lot of these things still come down to, you know, you still got to eat. Yeah, and I would suggest protein and then mostly healthy fats for your calorie source. Again, because you can boatload the carbs, and I'm afraid they're not going to be going into that trashed muscle very well. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, I wouldn't eliminate them, but at least control. You know, and, and it's interesting thinking back to, like, you know, my early years of bodybuilding training and so forth. I mean, some of the some of the soreness that I would achieve, <laughs> you know, in those first several years of training was just – when I think back, it was it was like you're saying, Lonnie. It was it was to the point where it was literally crippling. Um, and I think back to not only the volume of the things that I did, but the, you know, again, implementing all these things that at the time, you know, I thought were cool because I saw them in Joe Weider Muscle and Fitness and Flex magazines. But the whole idea of forced reps and all this type of thing, which is basically just another way of just doing kind of negative type training, and um, you know, and the, and some of the soreness was just was just outlandish. Um, 
you know. And, and oh, smoke. I just, yeah, I've been stinging sore. And you're right, Rob. I think to a fault, I still pursue that because to me, that means progress and yeah. growth. And that's why earlier and I was. It doesn't always correlate yeah. with all the other markers of recovery. So I got to be careful with that. Yeah. So it was one of the things that I actually had to, you know, I've talked about this before on the show. And it's one of the, 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 the psychologies of the, that I've had to get over in switching more to, you know, strength type. Pure strength time training is the whole idea that you you don't always have to, you know, <laughs> as you you know use your terminology, rock yourself to death, you know, where you're, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a lot of ways that works against you when you're a pure strength athlete too. So for for reasons that we've already mentioned, on, you guys have mentioned on the show already. Um, so it really is a balancing act, really, as far as how far you're going to go with these things. And certainly, if you're doing them, they can be very beneficial, but you have to use them very sparingly, and 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 kind of be almost like strategic in when you place them in your routine. Um, Fortress, can I let me ask you then? Over the course of a month, let's say an off-season powerlifter and an off-season bodybuilder are going to be fairly similar. They're trying to build mass. You know, they're not in a strength or power only phase. How often? Would you do negatives to you know get yourself just lit up with soreness over the course of a month? Would it just be? I would say maybe what? only maybe maximally two or three sets a week. Mm-hmm. No. Um, so you're talking about maybe four times a month you're going to actually use the eccentric work to get really really sore. Exactly, and and I yeah. and I believe that if you're going to do it, you don't really want to necessarily pussyfoot around with it. Um, you know, you really want to do. I mean, and, and it's time-consuming as well, as you guys understand, right? I mean, when you're doing it for exercises like a squat or even <laughs> like deadlift or a bench press, and you can do them up with all three, um, it's time-consuming, right? Because you can load up, you know, you could set the rack, you know, in a, in a squat cage. You could sweat the rack so, you know, that you come down with the bar and you could put several hundred pounds on the damn bar. And, you know, if you want to do that two or three times, that's unless you got ten guys, <laughs> you know, you've got to pull all those plates back to get the bar back on. Um, yeah. So, so it can be time consuming as well. But I mean, like when I say about, you know, I, if you're actually going to go that route, don't pussyfoot around. Do that. But you can, you're only going to do that once or twice. Because I mean, um, and you could do it low level as well. Like I'm saying with this whole kind of idea of compensating or acceleration, that type of thing or forced reps. But I mean, that kind of stuff is, even at that level, I think that people overdo it, you know, because people, you always see guys in the gym and the first thing their training partner is doing is half the workout he's doing is basically instilling some sort of forced, forced repage on the guy that he's training with. So, um, and I, in fact, you know, in many ways, what we're talking about here, and I think you guys will agree, it's sort of the antithesis of Waterbury's idea about lots of frequency. Cause like you were saying, Rob, you, you would almost have to focus on the concentric, like an Olympic lifter. I mean, I've seen football players to it too, right? They do power cleans and then they just step away and drop the barbell. Yeah. You know? Definitely. And because when you're trashing yourself like this, you need roughly five to seven days, I would argue, for enough recovery. I mean, Chad was talking about two or three days being the standard for muscle recovery, but you get really lit up with eccentric soreness that muscle is swollen i mean you can literally detect it with a tape measure i've seen people do it in the lab yeah um you know and you're just not going to do that more than about once a week i would argue and it just so this is that decimate and recover model that's so different from the high frequency i want to make just just a mention to the powerlifters out there who who maybe flirt with using gear or multiply gear whatever it may be you always see the whole idea that a lot of the guys who use a lot of gear in their lifting over time, now Louis Simmons again would argue with this point, but I think over time guys who are purely based on lifting with equipment tend to lose strength as a raw lifter. And I think yeah. a, a, I think a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that a lot of the support gear 
it's not, I mean, obviously it, it helps a lot in the concentric, but people don't really realize how much that, and people actually who do know about it actually use terms like stopping power and something like that when they're talking about bench shirts and squat suits, um, certainly in bench shirts. There's so much stopping power, you know. Um, you see guys who use some of these bench shirts and they actually have to pull the bar to their chest because there's so much yeah. tension in the you chest. Know, Rob, that's, that's funny you mentioned that because I, I thought about that too recently because I, I train in a powerlifting strongman gym and, you know, I, I see what you're saying and, you know, but then – you also hear guys that say, well, you should never, you know, compare raw and equipped because they're just different. But, and I haven't, I've never competed in powerlifting, so I can't speak from that experience. But it would seem that if you, if you train in more multiplied gear over time and then you do something raw over time, you know, you might lose some strength. That, that, that's just a pure, you know, guess. I, I'm, I'm not. Well, and I'm thinking that with some of the, the, the biggest benefit people get from like lift, geared lifting is the stopping power because i mean i mean anybody who has done heavy duty negatives and has actually pushed the limits of that you know so like if you bench 300 pounds you put like 450 pounds on the bar or something like that and you try and lower it you know once as slow as you can it's amazing how much you realize that stopping power is everything because if you can't stop the weight you're not going to lift the weight, you know what I mean? And, and how many times have we got, you see guys in the gym do that where they, you know, they, young guys who don't know what they're doing and they bench, you know, 185 for a few and they think that grants them the permission to put 275 or 300 on there and, you know, they get completely, you know, the bar comes down on them like a like a nuclear bomb, you know, <laughs> like they can't even control the weight. And so, I mean, there is something to be said with, that, with, with the whole idea that you have to have a lot of stopping power. It, I mean, is that... Is it purely a function of, of, of doing specific negatives in training? Not necessarily, but it's very important, of course, to the success in lifting. So there has to be an element of that. And I think, again, I think that's the biggest advancement than the whole West Side thing has had, certainly in, you know, in powerlifting and Western kind of style training, the whole idea that you have to, you really have to kind of, you have to have that, what I, what I call grinding or torquing strength. You know, um, you know, I always talk about it in terms of cars, you know, like you're just dropping the gear, you know, lower and lower. Um, and then you have to have the speed and acceleration component where you can actually fire the muscle quickly and try and act as best as possible, get get the rep done as soon as possible. So, you know, it really is a balancing act. But it, again, if you're it, it depends on kind of what you're going for. And, um, you know, you're, as Lonnie was saying, you know, like your 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 recuperative abilities and as they apply to like carbohydrate, you know, and, and your body like replenishing what it's taking out. And, and again, if people do a lot of negative style training, whether it be blunt force negative training, like just actually guys lifting the weight off and trying to lower it as slow as possible, then lifting off again, or low level stuff like I'm talking about, where you're actually almost self inducing it in low intensity ways by just slowing, you know, even if you do eight ten reps, but every rep you're lowering it, you know, quite controlled. Um, you know, either way, you have to kind of develop, you know, or see kind of what your tolerance for that is. And I mean, if you're getting so bloody sore that you're just walking around all the time feeling like you should be in a wheelchair, um, you know, obviously over time that's going to, you know, have detrimental effects as far as your, you know, overall strength performance and certainly your quality of life. So right, you you need to have some respect for this sort of thing. And you know, I would suggest that people pursue active recovery. We're just about out of time, but. Is be as proactive with your recovery as possible if you do eccentric stuff. Hot, cold contrast showers, yes. massage, naps, you know, keep the calories flowing, like we said. There's lots of stretching outside of the gym, you know. I used to have an old gymnastics coach at Kent State used to say, stretch a sore muscle. And I can see some, you know, um, logic to that. So let me recap very quickly before we end here. Um, pros and cons. So 
pros, and they're huge pros, actually. Probably the best hypertrophy that you can get uh, because of satellite cell activation and all the growth factors and that sort of thing. You can train over 100% of your one rep max, which can be fun. Um, also, a pro, arguably, and John seems to be most up on the literature on this, but it probably is going to translate to better strength in your regular concentric lifts. On the negative side, we've got stuff like um, vastly increased recovery time. I, I would argue two, three days doesn't do it. I mean, the blood marker <laughs> changes that I looked at, some of them weren't reset for up to five days. Absolutely. And, um, and Lonnie, just, just to interject, I mean, you know as well as I do that. I mean, there was days when I was in those early days of training where literally I my legs were smoked sausages for like six, seven days. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, when you say two, three days, I mean, at that level, it was like, you know, I, I would only start walking normal a, a week later. So, yeah. yeah. In fact, your old school rule I thought was great, Rob, which was wait until your soreness is gone and then give it an extra day yeah. if you have to. Yeah, no. You know, so this is an infrequent model to be sure. A couple of other possible negatives would be increased uh, metabolic rate. Uh, at the same time that you're nutrient-resistant in the muscles. Yeah. So I, I would suggest getting around that by keep the calories flowing, just make it protein and healthy fat. Again, some carbs, but you might want to pull back, I don't know, 20% on your carb and take that sort of thing because not all of your muscles are trash at the same time, uh, hopefully. you know. So you know, Or weakness, that's another possible negative. While you're sore, you're going to be weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the pros that I mentioned at the beginning with the greatest hypertrophy and that sort of thing – that's awful tempting. So I, I would suggest, yeah, it, it, it is a very viable um, approach to training if you have respect and you do it seldom. Yeah, I think people do it more than they realize without actually doing it on purpose. Exactly. You know, if, you, if, exactly. if you're squatting with 400 pounds on your back, I don't know, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of people that are just going, you know, a fast eccentric on the way down with a squat or even a bench. You know, so people do it more than they than they think they they do. Like of course, yeah, consciously, absolutely. And for, it certainly, we, we all know that you know, like benching two twenty five hyper fast is very much. If you're still controlling the weight and not, I mean, now remember, I'm talking about controlling the weight and not actually bouncing the bar off your chest. Right. But I'm talking about yeah, but bounce, benching two twenty five for ten very fast, but still in control is much much harder than doing two twenty five slow and I, a lot of people will be like well that doesn't make any sense or they might not think but it's true because again you're talking about re, you know re, the bar changing direction of the bar as it's going relatively fast on the ne- in the negative right so oh sure you actually you you invoke that whole stretch shorten yeah, exactly and just get better at and that's why I was yeah. saying though just to be clear so people don't think I'm totally losing my marbles here I'm not talking about you know free fall on the bar and having it re, you know bouncing off your chest I'm talking about still in control still in absolute control you're just moving the bar very rapidly I mean that that can be massively shocking on your system um, right. on everything, even joints so in connective tissue. So you want to be careful with that. But, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap us up here because we are out of time, really out of time. Uh, and I'm going to remind listeners, remember on our Facebook page to post a picture claiming an outdoor spot, lifting somewhere outdoors. Send us a photo. We're going to pick the two best photos, and I've got some gifts for you. So... Uh, should be fun all right anyway thanks everybody yeah and thanks john for being on the show oh thank you guys good to be back all right guys later see ya iron radio is accepting donations 
If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the iradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.